Happy 50th. 50th episode. Yeah, that's really exciting. I know, and it's a brand new year. And we we made a decision that we're going to actually share some of our inside secrets today. Yeah, so we're going to talk about, we're going to go back to sexual assault cases and, and defending them. And um, as we've said on a number of episodes about Bill C-51, which came into power revamping Section 276 and the records provisions and We've talked about the this array of cases. Because we, we were actually fighting the legislation. Now we find a way to make it work for us. Yeah, right? but we, we didn't yeah. succeed in fighting it. But just, just to be clear, this means that um, previously you only had to bring these pretrial applications if you were trying to um, adduce evidence at trial uh, or predicted that you would that was other sexual history that you had to bring a pretrial application. The new legislation means that if you want to use anything in your possession, bank records, whatever, if it has anything to do with the complainant and it's not just your own private record, then you have to bring an application to first determine, is it a record? And if it is a record, get permission from the, the court to use it at trial. So that's important. So any record, like a picture, um, a card, a, uh, an email, a bank, statement. a bank statement, all of those have to be vetted through a judge. And now also with sexual history evidence now it's not just prior sexual history evidence it's an expanded definition which can be so parsed out that it could be holding hands and cuddling and kissing 35 minutes before the alleged sexual encounter that led to the charge somebody sleeping over at your house even though you didn't have any sexual activity that night apparently is sexual history as we've talked about well we, we, we won that without, point thank god but we won't go into it now but without getting into that so this this case we're going to talk about is kind of interesting because we brought a, an application in, in, you know, in advance, and we were successful. And so, so let's lay it we out. We had for to bring everybody. a mid-trial application. So, yeah. so the the trial got interrupted. Let's start from the beginning. Yeah. So this is a case. So, so just tell them from the beginning. We brought an application. Just give a general idea of what we wanted to have admitted, and why. And then, and then I want to get into the mid-trial application. And and the other thing we're going to do is because. We've Talk done, about how we lay it out. We will. And, and, and we want to give some insights in it because having done 15 of them now under the new regime, we've learned certain things. And I think it's important for us to share um, because we're all in the same same uh, you know battle to try and get it right. Yeah. So let's talk about and, it. And, and of course, leading up to the Supreme Court, you know, verifying that the, the new rules are constitutional, it was split decisions all across the country. So some provinces said this was totally unconstitutional to have to do these. Now, now those provinces actually have to em employ the, the legislation. And, and uh, you know, there's been, it was, just, it was insane actually, how many differences of opinions there were as to what's a record, what isn't a record, and all this other stuff. And the Supreme Court said, well, defense knows what, what they know, so just err on the side of caution. And so what we've done is essentially because we also lost preliminary hearings, we've essentially used not these... not in the sense that we've lost them. It's been taken away. So it was legislation, taken away, yeah. as we said before, there are no more preliminary hearings for offenses punishable by fourteen years or less that include sexual assault cases. So the preliminary hearing is gone as a mechanism to to have prior to trial. So we have no preliminary hearings. You go right to trial. Right. And so one of the things that's, um, that's been challenged numerous times in the past and been still found constitutional is that when you do this pretrial application, it must be supported by an affidavit by the accused. Yeah. So talk yeah. about that for a moment. Yeah. So we're bringing an application in this case to admit sexual history evidence that we think is relevant 
to undermine the story told by the complainant to rebut it. And we also have a number of documents. And every time you file an application in court, it has to be supported by an affidavit of some sort. Right. So we want these documents to go into evidence. And what Diana is saying is in order to get this into evidence, there has to be an affidavit from somebody. That affidavit could be from the accused. Yeah. Or in some instances... A private investigator, a, cl a clerk, clerk... in a law firm. Yeah. Right. And so... But do we ever do that? No, because one of the challenges that you'll see all the time is that they say that as much as we give, they say you have to lay out your entire defense, otherwise your application is deficient in some way. And so... Break when, that down yeah, for a I moment know, so everybody gets it. Yeah, I know. It's important. It. It's important. So because the accused has to normally uh, themselves support the application saying these are actual records in my possession they're legitimate and, and i and i vouch for that in my affidavit they have to also lay out their version of events what they expect to testify about why is that important um it's important because sometimes the evidence and, and so here we'll get into how we laid out there's actually i want to back up a little bit so the first thing is you say what the person is charged with why you're bringing the application what it is you're seeking that's the first part. And uh, what sort of order you want from the judge, permission to use certain all of the evidence that you're presenting. The next thing you do is you say, here's the accusation. And you know, hopefully you have a transcript of what the complainant has said, which we always have. Um, and so then you lay out what she's, usually a she, what the complainant has said happened to them and focus on all the things that are going to be relevant to why your evidence that you're seeking to use is going to be relevant at trial. And because it's pretrial, we must assume they're going to testify in court the same way that they gave their statement. Right. So we assume when we're preparing the material, the statement that we have from the complainant will be ultimately the evidence at trial. That's the only basis we can operate on in order to ground the relevance of our evidence. Right. And sometimes there's things that were said in the police statement which would not be admissible in court correct and sometimes those things are things that the crown wants to lead the prosecutor if you're in the states that that they may actually want to to put that in as part of the narrative of how events unfolded but um we what we do is we try to flag not just things that the defense wants we, we flag stuff that the crown may intend to lead and the reason we do that so this is you know one important point is because we don't want any ambiguity ultimately when we get to trial. We don't want to argue over stupid shit that should be ironed out ahead of time. Exactly. So if the Crown wants and to And limitations. It, and then, and then yeah. the Crown may be able to put it in, but then we can ask the question because we're still really in uncharted territory. So we'd rather lay out all the evidence that we think is relevant, whether it's Crown-led or defense-led, get it out there and let's just deal with it so that when we cross-examine, we can cross-examine. Yeah, and it gives an opportunity at this pretrial motion for the Crown to say, you know what, I'm not going to leave that evidence. Correct, yeah. And then we get it on the record that they're not going to leave that evidence because sometimes when you have conversations in advance and you have some agreements or whatever, it's not if it's not on the record, who knows what's going to happen at trial. Yeah, and you could wind up in certain circumstances and with also, a different prosecutor. you know, witnesses are witnesses. You ask them a question and they can just ramble on and they can get into stuff that's not permissible. And if we don't have this discussion in advance, there's no agreement on where we're going to draw the line, right? Yeah. So let, let's come to then, you know, an affidavit and why we choose to have the affidavit always of our client. And there are, you know, two schools of thought about this. One is, you know, some lawyers will say, I really don't want to subject my client to disclosing a large amount of their defense on a pretrial application before 
before the trial starts and subjecting the client, the accused, to possible cross-examination by the Crown on this pretrial application. Because they have the right to cross-examine on an affidavit. Because the Crown has the right to cross-examine and that means that your client needs to be very well prepared for the evidence they would give on the application because if they're cross-examined on their affidavit, that evidence can be used. If they say something inconsistent at trial. Right, so it's a big point. So right. let's say they say one thing on, on the pretrial motion, say something else at trial in their testimony. You, the Crown can impeach them, meaning they can challenge them that they're inconsistent. So it's dangerous sometimes to put your client in that position. We have found that we will face arguments repeatedly, like boilerplate nonstop arguments, that unless the defense is laid out in some excruciating detail, actually, good word for it. we're f***ing deficient in every one of our applications. Yeah. It's, it's always a, a rape myth. It's oh, always, you know. It's a myth. It's not grounded in evidence. You it's know, a fancy you know, way of saying this. The most interesting thing that we've come across lately is that when we have, we've had clients that have, like, we have, we've got, like, 25, 30 exhibits, they say, it's too much. You've already got it somewhere else. Why do you need all of them? Yeah. Like, you know, as if it was a prosecution and you had, like, a 17-hour statement from an accused uh, inculpating themselves, the Crown wouldn't be able to use it because it's 17 hours. You only need an hour, right? Like... It's ridiculous, oh, yeah, right. um, but it's true. It's an argument that, that we meet, but what we meet- And it, we don't know, prior to trial, we don't know what the complainant's gonna say or, or maybe agree to. If they agree to a number of things, we've got evidence that something happened, say some sort of bank transaction or something like that, they agree to it, and we don't need the document. But we don't know if they're gonna agree to it before we get to trial. Right, so okay. so in order to- and I'm, and I'm saying bank documents, because I wanna make, want make it clear that this is not invasive material that causes us to have to bring these applications all the time because you know prior sexual history that kind of a thing yeah that's personal but we have to do this even when it's something as simple as a bank record yeah so you know our viewers may not understand and then other lawyers also and the clients um, don't understand sometimes. you know don't always grasp it fully and and it's not because it's their fault it's just because the law is so up as it is is that any document in our possession, which frankly we've had to put in banking records. Yeah. We've had to put in, you know, email exchanges about innocuous things that we know is not a record, but we do it anyway so that we are not caught One by at trial, you know, in a situation where somebody will object to it. One of my favorites was an email from the complainant saying, you're going to have to call the police on me so I'm basically going to stalk you until I'll, I'll never stop loving you. <laughs> right. But we, but, you know, you would imagine there isn't that much value of a privacy interest in that really telling important email oh, but that's it's defense her evidence. Oh, but it's emotional content. Right, but they will argue it's her personal emotional expressions of her feelings, therefore it's a high degree of privacy. It shouldn't be in. Mm -hmm. Like, f you. Like, no, but this is the type of that we have to deal with. So, so uh, just one sec. Yeah. I, w here's the difference that we do, is that we do a very detailed, thorough, thorough affidavit from the client, it's laid out in the application and it's in the affidavit. We have decided to do that in every single case. Yeah. So, and, and though, so you've got the original application in your yeah. hand in this particular case, which of course is publication banned. So, we can't uh, give we can't a name or anything. Details, we don't want to do that, but it, it's only. But it's laid out where we go, this is what. 85 paragraphs. This is long. what was said in the police statement. This is what we expect our client to say. 
and then we say these are the exhibits that we want and we go through every single exhibit and say probative value here's why it's relevant yeah this is what we we, we expect it will go towards and then we give a, a summary of the case law that supports our use of it and our ability to use it and the judge will be able to see how it's related to not only the evidence of the complainant but how it's related to the evidence of the accused, which is the accused story. Because sometimes it's not to do with what they said, it's to do with what we expect our client to say. Right, yeah. so here, here's the thing. This is the tactical decision that we make that we found has been advantageous. We don't hide the defense. So it's not just about what a complainant will say. It's about evidence that will also give coherence yeah. and probative value to what the accused is gonna say, our client is gonna say at trial. And, and we just lay says, it out. The Crown always says that they want to use evidence that defense would be prevented from using. They want to use it for narrative. Mm. And narrative is one of the dirty words that we've talked about before, the dirty words of sex assault to trials, yes. right? Narrative is not a portal to bring in anything. And so th these applications are also a, a really good chance for the Crown to rethink what they're going to do. Because if they're going to lead certain evidence from the statement, they have to be prepared for the defense having full answer in defense. Right, so we may be getting a bit convoluted here, but, and, and you know, this might be a bit dry, but it's important to understand for anybody who's accused of these, this type of offense in a, in a relationship, and then they have to try and explain their evidence, it's not just simply about what happened during the moments of that allegation. And, and, and what's, what's being pushed by Crown attorneys and lawyers for complainants is, the only thing is that's relevant is the interaction between the client or the accused according to them and the complainant at the time of consent that's what they want to constrict this to they want to narrow it to that focus so that nothing else gets in but at the same time they ask their complainant so when did you meet them and they ask for the entire narrative so it's not sex in a box that that one little moment they want to lead evidence about how everything evolved but then they want to restrict us from being able to, to give a, an alternate event because... We would not be able to. They don't want us to be able to cross-examine on anything other than that. Right. That sex in a box. And so it has to be framed properly. And so you're holding their our original application in this particular case. And then here, here it is. And this happens in almost every case. We file super early because the complainants provided a lawyer. It's like we want to give them lots of time. At least three months we, in we advance. We almost never hear back until like a week or two before yeah, trial. Yeah, so just think about that. So, so our policy is we try and file an application about 90 to 60 days before trial. And I prefer three months before trial. And we won't hear anything back sometimes till seven days before trial. Or only a few days. Yeah. And then as soon as we get the response, we end up having to also do a reply because because they start um, misconstruing, misconstruing what it is that's in our application, so we have to clarify. And why does that happen? Because we put in so much detail. And because also, there's an affidavit from the accused, because there's a well-laid-out defense, and we don't hide anything, it gets misconstrued. And then we do a reply to say, no, 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 this is what we mean. And so then, in this particular case, not only were we successful in our application prior to trial, but... Um, Defense gets accused all the time of trying to bring in specious, unnecessary, gratuitous sexual evidence and so on, right? Excellent point. And, and so in this case, we actually had to bring a trial, uh, a mid-trial application because there were things that we could have included in the first application, but um, we had no... We didn't think it was relevant. 
no it was like we had enough other stuff that kind of proved the point but because of the way the evidence came out all the other stuff became relevant yeah. where we couldn't have justified it at the beginning it would have been gratuitous right so let's explain it a little bit more clearly so this this is a good point and this is this is where people will you know will wonder what what the f are we talking about so we needed to get out some history of the sexual relationship between uh, our client and the complainant it was relevant because it was not just sex in a box there was a history here and the complainant had a, had a certain narrative that sex stopped at a certain point so other activities that we that we are aware of mm -hmm. um, were relevant to prove to counter that narrative that the complainant said but then there was other material that we had that was gratuitous that was you know other sexual activity that we ordinarily would not put in because it's gratuitous well, and and we didn't think anybody it was gonna... anybody would have believed that the non-sexual evidence we had of continued contact would have been sufficient right but it just it started to go over the top and it's just like okay well now we're gonna have to bring out and this is a perfect example of real world shit. this is how reality works so in the trial during cross-examination for the first time the complainant is now saying things that's different than what we understood from the statement oh, denying all sorts of contact making up other stuff and it's not in line with other evidence that we had that we chose not to use a because we thought it was gratuitous b we couldn't find its relevance and we had other material that we thought was sufficient so the complainant during cross-examination started to double down and triple down on all sorts of things that now has called into question other activities that went on that we can specifically disprove that the complainant's not telling the truth. Yeah, and other messages we didn't think would be relevant except for new statements that were made during the testimony and trial. And, and, and this is like, this is so important to talk about because for any defense lawyer or any person who's really interested in this area of the law, we cannot stop and we cannot be shy about trying to push back to say it's not sex in a box. There is a narrative. People have history, they have dynamics, they have a narrative that has to be told to give coherence to the evidence. And if we would be pushed into that area, the Crown would get away with this evidence, but we would not be able to right. refute it. Because the Crown is presumed to not be engaging in rape mess, and the defense is always presumed to be engaging in Always rape presumed. I know. That's, a, without a doubt, the submission is, that will lead to a rape myth. Always. When we say specifically, that's not what we're using it for. It's not, and this is why we do the affidavit, because it's literally. This is also why we lay out precise quotes from the transcripts of the police statement to say, or from the trial transcripts to say, this is what was said, and this is exactly why it's now relevant, because these are the words said, right? And we have the right to, to address that. But specifically, when we're always faced with that argument, what some judges say to us is, well, Mr. Crown, or Miss Crown, or Miss Complainant Lawyer, they've outlined their entire defense. Yeah. And they've specifically told us exactly how they're using it. And we're almost always told that and they didn't lay it out enough. because they. And that's not a rape myth. It's like they want our closing submissions. <laughs> they want everything. <laughs> Before we even go to trial. But this is such an important it's point. It's laid out. And even in spite of that, there's the possibility it could be used by a trier of fact as a rape myth. And the trier of fact is doing the motion going, yeah, but they're saying it won't. And, and, and here's how they laid it out. That's the specious nature of these arguments that we're facing from, from Crown attorneys and yeah. complainants lawyers. Yeah. And, and they're, getting to, they're getting to comment 
on relevance of evidence that has nothing to do with what they should be saying at that particular hearing, which is, I'm talking about complainants' lawyers. Yeah. We've argued about such stupid sh lately, it's unbelievable. Well, you used the word boilerplate before, and, and we've actually seen, yeah. seen copy-paste situations. <laughs> yeah, so here's a mid-trial application. Yeah, and so I, I just want to address that one of the things that was originally suggested before the Supreme Court said this is all constitutional and so on, was that um, there was an Ontario um, Superior Court judge who said that, um, that it was only constitutional if they, the trial was, uh, if the application was brought after their testimony in chief, mid-trial applications. A, a bunch of people in the Supreme Court agreed this is kind of mischief because it will bifurcate I think it's the correct word, yeah, yeah. Uh, the trial. So so then it means that you, you can't just book, because normally you would book the trial for how many days you think it's going to take, right. depending on how many witnesses there are and so on. And uh, so then if you have to stop and do a, a mid-trial application with the complainant having a lawyer and all this other stuff, it's gonna, you have to do almost like phase one and phase two. Yeah. So you would have to book the trial saying, we're going to, you know, we expect the, the complainant's going to testify for this much time and then we're going to stop and have a, an application and you know it's just it's not workable it's not workable it really isn't but in this case we had to bring one because um, well for one the the testimony was delayed for a number of reasons court availability complainant being ill at one point and so on and so we didn't get through it all that fast but because the nature of what came out and there was there was some information that was said that was like nobody ever heard the crown was going what yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we had to have like you know meetings going do you actually have any information about this you can share with us we had to get disclosure well, it was like e at, well while the witness is cross-examining i'm sending an email going sorry do you know about this yeah. <laughs> and it was like can a, you find that record maybe prior or, police report yeah there was a prior police report yeah. but it just shows the dynamic nature of a trial and we can't we can't pretend a trial is going to go in a certain way. It's a dynamic interplay. Yeah. And so this is a perfect example why we had to bring it. I know. And it is complicated. And one of the things that, you know, it's so unfortunate is that, you know, complainants get, and I always am going to rail about this, complainants get lawyers for free, even though they have, um, you know, they make their complaint for free. They have the prosecutor um, acting in, in their best interest and so on. Um, but all of these applications cost the accused money and as long as it goes on and you know you get your trial interrupted and god forbid we've had this happen because of the covid situation whatever you're all ready for trial and all the days are booked and then you know it all gets canceled and then they have to pay for you know well let, let's put it this way so thing is like the look, expenses on, for all of these things on many of these cases they're important they're I, important I, but. you know on many of these cases, it's an access to justice issue mm -hmm. because it's foisted upon an accused who has to really invest in their own defense, and it's very difficult. And yeah. we write off countless hours um, that we don't charge for because these are comp these take 50, 60, 70 hours to write. Yeah, no. It's not a joke, and we don't charge and also, for our really full time. And also, by the time we do our reply, quite often there's new case law that just came out that we add yeah. to, you know, to what's going on. And, you know, the thing is that is, as much as it is an access to justice thing, too, we have been so successful when you do these properly quite often because, like, you know, we've recently talked about honorable crown um, or prosecutors yeah, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Quite often it really it works like um, what we lost in our preliminary, preliminary hearings where you actually have a chance for them to look at their case and go, you know what? I'm out. Yeah, we had a, <laughs> we had a great crown on a recent case where we were successful yeah. in the application. 
and he reassessed it and he said, you know, I, I don't want to go ahead with this prosecution mm -hmm. and worked out a resolution and charges were withdrawn. Um, and, and, you know, kudos to him, did a great job in doing yeah, his analysis. a number of times, actually. But, but so the takeaway from this is a couple of things which we're sharing as insights is we found that there's little detriment to laying out our case in excruciating detail, putting in a detailed affidavit, having our client ready for testimony, yeah. um, because there is a lot of benefit to it. We, we tend to be successful on the application. We thwart the arguments against it up front. And then in some instances, we get the Crown Attorney thinking very carefully about whether they have a real case and off, and sometimes they withdraw. And also another important point is you, you just go in doing it right because if you, if you try to be too um, conservative about what it is you're going to put forward, you can lose the application and have to go to trial without access to the evidence that's important to you. Well, you know, that's a, that's a good point. And, you know, it's it's something we shouldn't let go easily, you know, it should be explained. So Because there is a philosophy that you just like save everything for trial, right? Yeah, so as I said, there's a tactical decision. There's a couple of schools of thought. One is you disclose only what you have to to try and win the application. Ours is basically full disclosure because we feel that there's no other way to make the arguments. It is what arguments. it is. Just yeah. lay it out. And, 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 it's and, not going to change once we go to trial. <laughs> no, and, and it's not as if, I, I don't find in the trials that we have run, it hasn't resulted in more effective cross-examination of our client. It has not resulted in the complainant being able to thwart our client's evidence in their cross-examination. And in some cases, the complainant has actually gone out of their way to try and deal with our client's anticipated evidence, which only led them down the road of getting more problems in cross, like mm -hmm. just getting killed with it because they're manufacturing they evidence. They changed their evidence after they knew what we had. So, so there's, you know, there's insights into this. And, and everybody, you know, lawyers will disagree, but we found it's valuable to lay it out. Yeah, and, and also, you know, in a way, it's a practice run because going to court is scary. It is, but can I just say one more thing? Because your point was really correct. Because what if you don't put in enough information and then you're denied? Yeah. What's your remedy after that? Nothing. You run the trial, the client can get convicted, then you have to go to appeal. Yeah. And what do you always say? Get it right the first time. Get it right the first time. So there you are on 276, 278 applications. Our little inside secrets to 2023 i know it's gonna be a busy year january is terrible <laughs> I, know. I know i need my vitamins thank okay. you like share subscribe what's that other thing hit notifications hit notif what is notifications um well because you can be subscribed but you won't see when they upload a new video unless oh, yeah. you hit, hit notifications. notifications please thank you very much